inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Video motion analysis of disabilities or anyone in motion, that's what we're going to talk about this morning on Radio Cade. I have with me Karen Negri, who is involved in a company that is taking this to market or is already in the market. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. So before we begin talking about you and about the company, why don't you tell me exactly what the underlying technology is and what it does? We'll come back and talk later about the applications and so on. Sure. Basically, video is becoming the ultimate medium for us to communicate with people. It tells a story much broader than a image or a paragraph. And so with 2D motion analysis or video analysis, we can take our smartphone and take a video of someone moving, and then we can actually measure some of the progress that a person is making. So let's say you hurt your shoulder and you're not able to lift it 100% up. We can take a video of you now doing the best that you can, and we can measure that angle. And then we can go through some rehab, maybe provide some intervention with a brace. And afterwards, we can measure that intervention in the same way that we did by measuring that angle again and measure how well you're doing. And that also gives you, the person that is going through this process, the feedback to see how you're doing in your progress of rehabilitation versus me just shouting feedback to you. Yeah, I see. Or you're not doing good enough or that you need to lift higher. When you can actually see it, it actually connects to your brain a lot faster and you can actually improve your function through that biofeedback, little to no response by me. I don't have to intervene as much. I see. And so, Kara, just so I understand, is the technology here, do you use, for instance, multiple cameras or is it a software solution in which you're taking video in theory from anywhere, like a smartphone, and you're simply analyzing it with that software. Yes. So you can take video in any way you want. So if you want to use a really high fancy camera, high definition camera, then you can, or you can use your smartphone because smartphone cameras are actually pretty good good (laughs) these days. So it's about the practicality of it. I see. Um, We all may have seen how Avatar is made with lots of pinpoints on the person and we're tracking their motion and we can do lots of animation with it. And that is the 3D motion analysis that some people may have seen. And that's great for research and for higher capture of what we need to find out about a person. But for the practical uses of physical therapy or prosthetics and orthotics, we don't need that much information. We need one-dimensional or two-dimensional information for us to observe. So the reason that video is that ultimate solution is because our eyes are not very reliable. We make mistakes. We see things that aren't really there. So using video to even just play something back and see that event again, as you see that we do with the World Cup going on, other sports, video playback is becoming a part of even professional athletics. So if we can just record a video and use that for playback, that's the first step to seeing things that you may have missed in the real life event. 
So the name of the company is P&O, correct? Mm -hmm. And that stands for? Prosthetics and Orthotics. Orthotics. It's associated or owned by a New Zealand firm, is that correct? The New Zealand firm is called the Tarn Group, and they create software solutions for a lot of motion analysis as well as learning management systems. So we all started as a group providing software solutions for athletic coaches. So thinking of golf or bike fittings, tennis, professional swimming, rugby, different athletic associations were using the software to provide feedback to their athletes so that they could perform better. I see. So when I started using their products, I saw the opportunity for me to use it as an educational solution as well. So when I was trying to teach other practitioners what I was seeing in a video, why I was making a clinical decision, I started to use video as that medium. So I could slow things down and say that right there, that's that moment of why I'm making this clinical decision here. And so I was using mostly their bike fitting software to do so. And it's actually very similar. Bike fitting, if you think about it, the biomechanics, if you have a pedal. They have to match. Yeah, yeah, if you have a pedal that's not correctly placed, then it's going to affect the performance. So if we can do the same for healthcare, we look at how something might be affecting someone's performance and we can make adjustments biomechanically with interventions or therapy. Uh, Let's talk about how you ended up doing this. Tell us what you were like, say as a kid, what sort of influences did you have? And then maybe a little bit about your education. Sure. I grew up with a family of four girls total. (laughs) Um, So my dad didn't really treat us like girls. It was just, we are who we are. And you're the oldest, Kara? No, I'm actually one of the youngest. I'm a twin and I'm one of the youngest. And um, we were also athletes. So our family was very known in the area for being basketball players. Basketball, okay. So funny enough, I'm the one that did not play college basketball. (laughs) I pursued engineering. So I don't know exactly what it was. I used to tinker with things. I used to play with things, take things apart. Used to compete in Odyssey of the Mind competitions and things like that. But the real big moment for me was I read a book when I was in fourth grade about a girl with an amputation. And I read it so many times that the librarian gave it to me at the end of the year. What was the name of the book, do you recall? Michelle. Michelle. And I still have it. You still have it. All right. And what was the, that's sort of unusual, um, what was the storyline? Was it a true story? Was yeah. It, oh, it was a true story. Okay, got it. Yeah, and she was just this young girl who lost her leg from cancer and pursued skiing, horseback riding, all things that people told her she couldn't do. And I, I guess I found it incredibly motivational and inspiring. And so I just read it and read it and read it. And, and the librarian gave you the book. So. Yeah. <laughs> she gave it to me at the end of the year and said, no one else has checked this out. <laughs> and you've checked it out four times this year, so you can have it. And so um, I kept it, but I didn't know I wanted to be in biomechanical engineering or anything like that at that point. But I think it definitely planted a seed in my mind. And where did you go to school? I went to Michigan Tech for a few years. It's an engineering school, but then I transferred to Kettering University, okay. which is a cooperative program, which is amazing. If anyone's looking into going to engineering programs, specifically because it's cooperative, you do three months of school, then three months of work, and you do that for four and a half years about. Where is Kettering located? It's in Flint, Michigan. Flint, okay. Mm-hmm. So when you started your undergraduate, you knew you wanted to be an engineer of some sort. Mm-hmm. You want, you already knew you wanted to be in biomedical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And so post-college, did you go straight into the industry or what did you do? 
So my co-op program was in biomedical engineering, working for a prosthetics company. And we did research on casting devices and ways that we could take better impressions of a person's residual limb. And so I had a lot of hands-on experience in the profession by that time. And so I actually was accepted to a prosthetic certificate program two weeks after I graduated. So I went to Chicago to Northwestern for that. And then I was in patient care in prosthetics and orthotics for about two years, maybe not even, because I had the research bug or I had the inquisitive bug of some kind. Not that patient care isn't inquisitive and it is very complicated. It's very challenging because every patient is different. But for me, I wanted to design. I wanted to invent, I guess. (laughs) Were either of your parents engineers or in the medical field at all? Uh, My dad is a medical technologist. Okay. And do you remember going to his place of work or was it, did it have any role in wanting to steer in that direction? Yeah, I think that the measurement core, the core of being able to measure something is at the heart of that influence, I guess, because a measurement to me is very comforting. It's something that you can rely on. If you can measure it, then you have something that's objective versus So you've always been kind of a numbers person. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, what did your sisters end up doing? Are they all in the WNBA now? Or? <laughs> no, uh, they're also in healthcare. So really? okay. two nurses and my other sister works for an insurance company, really? healthcare insurance. Yep. Let's talk about PO. You've said that one of the things that has surprised you has been kind of an objection by the market or a reluctance by the market. Mm-hmm. And is that because you think people don't really understand the application, the potential applications, or what is behind that? There are a large majority of professionals that are a little bit older. And that is not to say that people that are older do not embrace technology. It just sometimes does go hand in hand. But I actually see all spectrums of mm-hmm. people who are older that embrace technology and people that, that are younger that don't embrace technology. The biggest hurdle for me in, in and piano data is that it's not a part of their regular day workflow. So taking out the camera, as much as it seems like it might be a very small thing, is not always second nature to people. So it's asking them so to like do something else. So like an afterthought or, okay. Yeah. Right. And then also, unfortunately, they don't have a billing code for the service. I see. So when they do it, it's because it's the, for the greater good of the patient or to properly communicate to the physician or the physical therapist or the insurance company. So there is a great part about PNO data that helps people collaborate. Mm-hmm. And that is the bigger picture that I hope to spread through the technology is that we have people, let's say, in New Zealand who have a rare case of fibular hemimelia and cannot get a professional in their area because it's just so rare. Whereas if you use our video analysis platform, you can actually connect to people from Canada, from Australia, from the U.S., and get them to look at your videos and provide expert analysis on it as well. Are there any cases in which the video analysis actually brings you a new insight into the patient's condition as opposed to simply being confirmation or an adjustment that they're able to look at the video and go, oh, X or Y is going on and I had no idea. Do you have examples like that? So when I first started using video, I started using apps that helped me take video and I could then show a patient, here's how you're doing. But when I started using the group product, Silicon Coach, I actually had that moment of going through a process of looking at someone's gait and how they were walking 
And not only did I find things that I could then show the patient that they had improved on, I found mistakes that I had made. And so that was the biggest light bulb moment for me was Mm -hmm. I'm a better clinician because I used this video. I found the mistakes that I made in my patient care versus just verifying that I had done the right thing. I actually was able to improve. To correct your own mistakes. Yeah. Right. So it seems in principle that it would be relatively easy to make the compelling point or the utility of this. But if I understand correctly, a lot of healthcare professionals, since they can't necessarily recoup the cost right away because there's no billing code, and it's something, yet another thing they've got to do that they just are not interested. Yeah, they really have to weigh the value of the time spent on it, even if it is only 10 minutes and they're not getting paid for it. That extra 10 minutes could be spent with another patient. And unfortunately, healthcare is getting squeezed and squeezed because of things that... And they're having to weigh those options. Is there a future at all in telemedicine? Could conceivably you have a few years from now, patients at home, their spouse or parent, whatever, takes a video of them and they send it in and they you analyze it. Is that a model that's out there? Or is this something that for the retail home market is still useful? We've definitely done a little bit of that already. So we support mobility clinics where we'll take video of people trying to run for the first time or attempting to run for the first time. In P&O Data, it's a web-based software. So you basically just invite people to your area, your community on the web-based software. And so we invited all of the patients to take a look at their videos that we captured of them that day. And so then they can feasibly take a video of themselves six months later and compare the two on their own if they wanted to. And also just reflect back on, oh, look how far I've come. I see. Right. Yeah. I've seen some of these sports gyms now. Sometimes they'll also have a rehab clinic mm-hmm. you know, as part of the gym. Are they potential customers or are they buying your product? Yeah, absolutely. And so they are potentials and there are people that are doing that right now as well. Mm-hmm. You're still a small operation, right, here in the U.S.? Um, I actually am responsible globally for all of prosthetics and orthotics. Oh, okay. And our entire team in New Zealand helps support PT or rehab facilities just really depends on their need or their want. We do have a couple physical therapists on staff over in New Zealand as well. So we kind of match the clinic or the organization with whoever's going to be the best person to train them. And it also sometimes depends on time zones. <laughs> right, right. Now you've chosen to locate here in Gainesville. Was there a specific reason because there's a number of research hospitals here? Or Tell, uh, me, tell me the decision tree that led to Gainesville. Well, that was my husband. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. I used to live on the beach. In, in California, and he somehow drew me away. <laughs> wow, so you must really love this company, huh? <laughs> well, that's great. I know you've been at this a few years, so you're still sort of in the beginning stages of trying to get this technology known. If you saw somebody in a similar situation, say yourself 10 years ago, for instance, or, mm-hmm. and they were trying to, to get a technology out there, what words of advice would you have for them in terms of what, what they should definitely do and definitely not do? So I did a lot of market research. My only mis well, my big mistake, I guess, with the market research is that I contacted forward thinkers, people that I thought were at the forefront of best clinical care. And of course, they all thought it was a great idea. (laughs) A little bit too forward thinking, right? Right. So you, number one, should always do market research and make sure that you're asking... Talking to actual customers or potential customers, right? Right. And not just 
about whether they think it's a good idea, how much are they willing to pay for it, and make sure that you get a diverse group of individuals that are in your marketplace, not just the forward thinkers. Because with a product life cycle, you'll always have those people in the beginning that will create the hype because they are interested in the best and new technology that's available but you really want to see a steady influx of the main majority of people that are in your profession or industry. So definitely make sure that you gather market research on every single person that represents the industry. And I guess number two was to consider the workflow of the people and make sure that this is not going to be asking them to change their current methods too much. Because if it is, then it's going to be a harder sale than if it's something that just helps them do their job better and they already have something in place or they already have time spent on that. So you've had to spend probably a lot more time with healthcare professionals to see exactly what that workflow is and how to integrate this into that. Being in the profession, I knew the workflow, and and I do think that I took that into consideration, but I didn't take it into consideration that even 10 minutes could be a lot to ask. Right. Good point. You made a a good point earlier as well about the feedback that you get, and I've seen this happen with other companies and and, in building the the Cade Museum as well. You know, until you have paying customers, you get seduced by that positive feedback loop. Almost no one will say, well, that's a terrible, crappy idea. but. The minute you start putting a price tag on it, then, well, you know, we're not quite sure. And that's, I think, the first cold dose of reality Mm -hmm. and how scalable your product is. Yeah. I've spent a majority of what I do as far as educating the profession on how to use video analysis. So it's not just a turnkey solution like, here you go, have it. I was really actually quite surprised at how much people didn't know what to do with it. They they needed to be sort of handheld every single step of the way. And so we do have outcome measures built mm-hmm. into our software, which is actually a great measurement to use. Instead of just saying, here, watch the video, draw some angles and take some measurements on it, they actually have a systematic workflow of what they're supposed to be looking for. And so that's really, really helpful to help guide people. I do think that education, no matter what technology is, you've got to think about that from the very beginning of how you're going to get education to new users. Mm -hmm. Um, I started off doing webinars with every single person, and it was very time-consuming. So I created a YouTube channel, and I created all the videos that would show them how they need to do just about anything. So you really had to think about sort of creative marketing tools, it seems like, to get, mm-hmm. again, that core idea, mm-hmm. which is seems to be a recurring theme that I've heard a lot. It's a, a lot of times it's not really the quality of the idea itself. It's actually educating and informing people that the idea exists mm-hmm. and that it actually can help them. Yeah. And one of my main marketing agendas is to present at meetings in a scientific manner. So I'm not promoting my software, but I'm promoting the use of video. And so I actually speak at international conferences on the use of video in patient care and trying to get people to wrap their heads around that idea first and not promoting my business necessarily. Well, it would seem also that now the constant improvement in smartphone technology and smartphone cameras that you might be opening up potential avenues of people who wouldn't even have thought to use Mm -hmm. their phone, for instance, before to do analysis like that. Well, I'm certain that after this podcast episode is released, your server is going to crash from all the new orders. And what is your website, by the way, Carl? It is uh, pnodata.com. So it's P as in prosthetics, N as in Nancy, 
O as in orthotics, data.com. Data.com. Yeah. And on there, they can see videos and other examples mm-hmm. of them. Good. Yep. And you can check out our YouTube channel as well as P&O Data Solutions. Okay, great. Kara, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I've, I've certainly learned a lot and wish you all the best. Thank you. Radio K would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Hartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.